Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. We had to get not just our DV court judges on board, but we had to circle the sort of everybody around this, this mission to make sure that these cases could be heard, not just that people could file, but that we gave them court dates and that we could give them full orders of protection, lasting orders as they're entitled to have under the law. So we pulled in judges from all over. We would divide one docket among three judges. You know, and again, this was when you, it was even hard to find an extra webcam. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm your host, Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. The pandemic brought with it surges in health and economic distress, along with public health requirements to remain in place. All the ingredients needed to create a perfect storm of domestic violence incidents. Adding to that toxic mix, literal storms in the form of hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and wildfires have added to the challenges faced by low-income Americans and the courts and legal aid programs that serve them. Today, I'm joined by five legal professionals who serve on the front lines in responding to these issues. Judge Jason Dodson serves as circuit judge of the 21st Judicial Court of Missouri in St. Louis County. Judge Dodson spent the early portions of his career in private practice, litigating a variety of civil cases, later transitioned to legal services of Eastern Missouri, where he acted as managing attorney of its domestic violence family law unit. Brittany Hightower is a staff attorney with the individual safety unit at Lone Star Legal Aid. She works out of the Belton, Texas office. Brittany provides legal services to survivors of sexual abuse, including protective orders, divorces, custody, housing, privacy, and other issues. Keandra Miller is a managing attorney with Legal Aid of North Carolina based in Wake County. There she directs the organization's domestic violence and sexual assault practice group. As a career law and legal aid attorney, Tiandra has served on a variety of local and statewide task forces that focus on domestic violence and sexual assault. Pamela Roy rose through the ranks to become managing attorney of the Joplin office at Legal Aid of Western Missouri in 2015. She initially joined Legal Aid of Western Missouri as a staff attorney in the domestic unit 20 years ago. She also served as guardian ad litem in child orders of protection and as the Violence Against Women Act Stop grant attorney. And finally, Deborah Vagan serves as president and CEO of the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Deb has decades of experience, including as senior vice president of public policy and research at the American Association of University Women Chief of Staff and Principal Attorney Advisor at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and Senior Legislative Counsel on Civil Rights Issues for the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office. Welcome and thank you to all of you. Pam, let's begin our conversation. Can you tell us what you've seen and what the data suggests about the prevalence of domestic violence in Western Missouri over the last 19 months? Yes, initially here in Western Missouri, we did see a dip in a decrease in intakes, including family law and domestic violence cases. 
Um, this is during the start of the pandemic when people were at home and we weren't receiving as many intakes in this area. The slight increase in intake came as the pandemic progressed and about late summer. And since the course of the pandemic, we have increasingly seen more applications all the way from 2019 to present. Um, we attribute some of the increases to clients being at home more during the economic crisis, health crises, unemployment, school closings, lack of daycare options, causing further isolation for our clients and making it more difficult to leave and find a safer um, situation for them and their families. Um, we do also note that sheriffs locally also saw a similar trend. Um, as we know, domestic violence is already an, an underreported crime, and um, the pandemic further accentuated this. But the sheriff's department here locally has also now seen a upward trend of occurrences and reports as well. Um, we do believe that the initial decrease here in Western Missouri and serving our clients was certainly um, to a lack of access to advocacy, you know, just physically being remote from our clients, distance between individuals and families and our clients having um, distance from those support systems that they are normally um, relying upon. Um, it really limited the access to clients. And so what we did in our agency as much as we could is we wanted to support our advocates that were working with our clients, social service agencies that we always remain partners with and to support each other to improve access and one instance in particular, what we did to create access and better our outreach efforts is we created posters that um, included QR codes that could be scanned and were placed in certain facilities throughout our community so clients could scan to immediately access our program information. And while we were creating those posters, we also created hotlines pandemic hotlines, 1-800-HOTLINES that were manned by attorneys um, whenever clients called, specifically surrounding unemployment issues and stimulus. And um, the stimulus disputes is something that I believe was an increase in our litigation dealing with these family law cases. And those were the types of cases that we saw. And it was great to have partnership with our low-income tax clinic who was manning the stimulus hotline so that we could assist our clients better with those stimulus questions because the increase in litigation that we saw were disputes over the stimulus. The abuser siphoning the stimulus. Um, we were in court trying to argue who's gonna get the stimulus. Um, and also those were some unique pandemic litigation issues that we faced. We also faced cases involving um, the need to enforce custodial orders um, because the pandemic and health crisis caused certain families, of course, stress. And also if they're already in an acrimonious situation and they're already involved in court, maybe there was a situation where one parent felt the need to keep the other parent. And when there's already an unbalance um, with regard to abuse in the home, that was always an issue for us. We do believe that during the pandemic, as the courts were adjusting to these cases and hearings, certain delays related to um, the hearings and so forth made it harder for our clients 
to find their own way, their own path to safety. And um, for example, we recently did have a case very early on in the pandemic where an incident of abuse took place between a client and her abuser arguing in the vehicle, in the car, potential risks to the children that were in the car with them and, and an argument ensued resulting in an accident and um, causing some um, harm to, of course, our client and to the children. And as a result of that incident, again, the incident was prior to the pandemic, resulted in some criminal charges with the abuser. And um, what that happened is, of course, our client was able to, at that time, pre-pandemic, separate from her abuser and find herself in a place where she's safe. Um, but shortly thereafter, her abuser filed for a dissolution of marriage. And um, the client did come to us for possible assistance. Our client was facing lots of financial stress um, early on, just before the pandemic hit. And within the early months of the pandemic, she lost daycare and also her job as a result of the pandemic. And so therefore, those additional stressors in her life caused her to have some health issues as we were working with her through um, onboarding her onto our um, cases. And one evening, um, it was a situation where she was so stressed and unable to handle the anxiety that she was dealing with, the unknowns of the pandemic, not having a job, who's taking care of her kids. Um, she ended up in the emergency room and um, had no other choice, but um, the abuser was the one that had to come and pick up the child. And it was one of those situations where she felt hopeless and didn't know what to do. Um, and therefore, as a result, just, uh, I would say a few weeks after that incident, um, our client and the abuser decided to reconcile and did not want to then pursue the dissolution of marriage. And, you know, this is a difficult struggle that many of our uh, victims face in providing and receiving um, independence. It takes so many times for our clients to find that. And I do believe that the pandemic delayed many of our clients' path to safety. Thanks, Pam. And you really point out uh, one of the insidious aspects of domestic violence, which is even a downturn in the number of cases can mask other things going on, which is actually causing an increase in actual incidents, but the statistics don't bear that out. Brittany, what does it look like in Texas from your perch at Lone Star Legal Aid? How has the prolonged public health crisis and related social and livelihood stresses impacted domestic violence? Thank you. So similar to Pam, we initially experienced the same slowdown and then a significant increase in intakes. I will say things picked up a lot earlier for us probably around June 2020, and I suspect that that's because Texas reopened sooner than a lot of other states did. Like Pam said, we also saw the slowdown in cases as really an access issue. Many people did not have a safe place uh, to even be able to make a phone call for help since they were still stuck in their homes with their abusers. We also saw an increase in the severity of violence in a lot of our cases. This lack of access really amplified the disparity between people who were mostly okay beforehand and were able to transition to life within the pandemic versus those who were just kind of barely hanging on before and really fell even further behind as a result of the pandemic. So for example, survivors in dangerous housing situations 
had even fewer options available to them because once the pandemic hit, there was a reduced capacity in shelters. I had a client who prior to the pandemic was living in an RV with her abuser and her children. Once the pandemic hit and there was an incident of violence that that prompted her to want to seek help, she was open to going to a shelter, but there just was not space for her and her children anywhere nearby. And she didn't have transportation to get to another place where there possibly would have been room for her to shelter. And so she made that very difficult decision, similar to, to Pam's client, to decide to stay in that abusive relationship in that dangerous situation because she really didn't have a better alternative and she just had to sit around and wait for um, a safer housing alternative. This disparity also became clear during our shift to virtual hearings here in Texas. So many of our clients were already on the margins of surviving and this just exacerbated that problem. So for example, some clients were not able to find a safe place to be able to call into the hearing. Some of them did not have smartphones or laptops to be able to fully participate in court proceedings that were all online. There were privacy concerns. That was a big issue we ran into here in Texas where our judges were interpreting the open courts requirement to broadcast these very private and very difficult proceedings over YouTube. Some of our clients didn't even have a place to to where they could charge their device or or access the internet. So normally clients in these situations would be able to come into our offices or utilize resources that are community partners. But for the safety of our high-risk clients and our staff, this just wasn't possible during the pandemic. A good example of this is one client I had who only spoke Spanish. She did not have a smartphone or tablet or a laptop. Her custody proceedings were going to be over Zoom, and it was hotly contested. The only way that she was able to participate was by calling in on her cell phone. And so therefore, we had this entire proceeding taking place over Zoom that she could only hear. So there's two attorneys, the two parties, the judge, the court reporter, and the interpreter. And that's difficult enough as it is just doing virtually, as I think most of us have experienced but add in the fact that she she can't understand what we're saying to each other in English. People are talking over each other and she doesn't even have the visual cues of Zoom to identify who's speaking, who is speaking to her and what's going on. At the end of the day, she said she really didn't understand much of what was going on. And I don't feel like that she really got to participate in her trial in any sort of meaningful way. So it's just some of the examples that we've seen that the pandemic has just exacerbated problems that were already there. Tiandra. Brittany and Pam have discussed what they are seeing with their clients, but service providers themselves have been profoundly challenged during the pandemic. Could you tell us what it's been like for a civil legal aid attorney handling domestic violence cases during the pandemic and uh, what you and your colleagues have experienced? Like Pam and Brittany before me, our attorneys experienced a lot of those same issues. So I would like to kind of take it back a step to the beginning of the pandemic and kind of just share with you what it was like as a legal aid attorney. Unlike evictions and other court matters, there was no moratorium for domestic violence. At the beginning of the pandemic, our chief justice of the Supreme Court issued a series of emergency directives that postponed or delayed most most court proceedings. Domestic violence, however, was always an exception. Therefore, the attorneys were more on the front line, on the ground, walking in serried lines with survivors 
as they entered into courthouses throughout the state. And I'm sure many of you guys had those similar experiences. Now remember that was back in the time when there was inadequate PPEs, there was a lack of sanitation um, products and social distancing was just not being followed. And in order to combat that, our executive director had gathered as many supplies as he could and all of the attorneys were directed to share that with the survivors as best as we could. So they would often show up at courts with extra masks and, and products that we would definitely share with the survivor. But in order to minimize exposure for our clients and ourselves, the attorneys were at the forefront of really strongly advocating for access to remote opportunities such as virtual court settings. And so those efforts included, we had one office that actually produced a video. It was a how-to for a mock trial. And it really took the parties through the steps of a virtual trial. And that video was widely distributed amongst the legal community and among judges. Additionally, we offered to lend our hardware. We would tell judges, we will lend you computers, tablets, IT experience, we were looking for anything that would really minimize that exposure. And so most of our referrals come from our partners with the local domestic violence and sexual assault agencies. And so at the very beginning of this pandemic, some of them had to close periodically or curtail services. So like Pam and Brittany, we also created a poster that we sent out to very targeted areas. And those um, folks were directed to call legal aid directly. We have a central intake unit. And in that unit, uh, they have experience with domestic violence. We actually have a domestic violence dedicated line, but they also have experience dealing with disasters. You may not know, North Carolina is the fourth state in the country that deals with uh, hurricanes. And so in those cases, when survivors are not able to access community resources, we've had them call into our central intake unit. And unbeknownst to us, that was great practice for the pandemic. So we were able to just hit the ground running. Like Pam and Brittany, we also saw a similar trend in terms of that first part of 2020, we were getting less intakes, but towards the end, we saw that uptick. And I just looked at our numbers in 2021 from January to September, and those numbers are already surpassing 2019 and 2020 numbers. And I think we've already heard the factors of why that may be, but I just wanted to reemphasize Although more people are connected to the community, getting more help, we are really having to deal with the impact of the housing crisis. And so now beyond COVID, the whole impact of the housing crisis is really next on the horizon. Deb, uh, Teandra has given us a perfect segue in talking about uh, connection to community. And uh, we've heard from all of our legal aid colleagues the importance of collaboration with community partners. Can you tell us about what the National Network to End Domestic Violence 
does and how you collaborate both with civil legal aid and other community organizations and what you've seen from your perspective over the last 18, 19 months. I'm happy to. Let me tell you a little bit about NNEDV and what we've been seeing recently nationwide. And I also just want to say I am honored to be here with all of you and just commend the work that all of you do and, and the work of LSC. So thank you for letting me join you. So NNEDV is a national nonprofit that works to make domestic violence a priority. We represent the 56 state and territorial domestic violence coalitions who then in turn represent the over 2000 local domestic violence programs. We have expertise across multiple disciplines and topics. We provide technical assistance to the coalitions and other partners on issues around technology safety, confidentiality, we've heard a lot about that today, housing, federal legislative advocacy, intersections with HIV and, and social determinants of health, economic justice, and more. And we do provide some direct services with our women's law program, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute, and also we have a micro loans program, which helps with some economic justice issues. But in response to the pandemic in particular, we, immediately convened a rapid response team of experts across all of our disciplines so that we could share consistent guidance for uh, domestic violence shelters and service providers. Some of the things we saw right at the beginning have been talked about from the, a different perspective. You know, how do you transition immediately to online services or how do you help shelters understand requirements or help them stay open if they are not considered frontline workers and can't get PPE? So there was a lot of of some of that rapid response work. And we created a national hub of material. Some of that was stimulus payments and housing needs, information as soon as we could find it about vaccines and domestic violence programs, and then using technology to communicate with survivors during a public health crisis. Um, we also leveraged corporate partnerships and those relationships to deliver um, a desperately needed PPE. We did a pop-up store in the middle of the crisis. And we also worked with some of our corporate funders to get emergency relief funds into the field. So we partnered with the Allstate Foundation to get a million dollars in small emergency grants into the field. It's never enough, but it was a huge thing to be able to do that. And we're grateful to them. What I really wanted to talk about today in the context of legal services is one of our signature programs and what it saw during the pandemic, and that's our women's law program. That provides two services. One is an email hotline where you can write in and get free confidential information from an attorney. And then we also have uh, womenslaw.org, which is our website, which has information in English and Spanish in all 56 states and territories. We never wanna see anyone go pro se, but if someone has to, or if they just wanna learn a little bit more without legal ease, they can go to our website and read about material from divorces to custody arrangements and protective orders if they have to. And we put up also critical resources about COVID on women's law, including a snapshot of what was happening in some state courts, restraining orders during COVID, virtual hearings during COVID. So we got some of that up. With respect to the email hotline, which I think is probably the most relevant topic today, as I said, people can write in and ask a question that can be answered by our team of highly trained attorneys. And when you look at the 18 months during COVID, so March, 2020 to the end of September so far of 2021, and then you compare to the 18 months before that, 
what we saw is we answered about 8,000 emails for legal information um, reviewed by attorneys. And before that, about 6,900. So that's a roughly about a 15% increase. But we also had to close our hotline for over 40% of the time during that 18 month period during COVID because of the volume of requests that we were getting, we couldn't keep up and our lack of staffing and resources. We also saw for just the people who are going to access legal information, we saw it increase from website visitors 2.1 million to 5.3 million during COVID. And for page views, it increased from 5.9 million to 12.3 million. So doubling essentially, uh, more than doubling during, during COVID. So that was a huge trend for us. And just quickly wrapping up on a couple other things, other trends we saw in other of our programs were, of course, in employment and housing and security. Domestic violence survivors, especially survivors of color, experience housing and employment insecurity at disproportionate rates as a direct result of the violence they've endured. And then this was only made worse by the pandemic and who was a frontline worker and who lost jobs and who had access to housing. So that was a trend that we saw as well. And so what we're doing is we're translating all of that into working on public policy measures so that we are asking the administration and Congress to center the needs of survivors of color. We've been working this whole time on COVID-19 relief legislation and policies and programs, and particularly focusing on federal policies that address housing needs, workplace protections, economic justice, and so on. Before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and continuing, we also have a team that focuses on natural disasters. And I will say that in the last 18 months, we saw an incredible increase in other natural disasters from wildfires to flooding to hurricanes. And so we have a team that will liaison with coalitions who have been affected to help them with preparedness, business continuity, and, and try to set them up for emergency funding and then the long-term road to recovery. Thanks, Deb. Judge Dodson, thank you for your patience. It strikes me that like legal aid lawyers, our courts, particularly domestic violence courts, are really on the front lines. So can you tell us what has the impact of COVID been on the courts as it relates to domestic violence? We do have a domestic violence court in St. Louis County where I get to serve as a judge. I'll just say this, that serving as a legal services attorney uh, for 10 years of my career, of my life, was some of the most fulfilling work I have done. And I will tell you, the path that led me to the bench started at legal services because it was there that I hoped that I could broaden the uh, impact I could have as an insider on the bench. So happily, that's, that's turned out to be the case. I do get to serve on our domestic violence court. The challenges are endless uh, in terms of the COVID-19 impact uh, on our DV court would be not exaggeration. Again, going back to the, to the genesis of where we are now, we had to immediately respond to the need to keep the lifeline that the courts, that the law can provide, that the courts can provide on civil protection orders there. So we made it clear, although there were the stay-at-home orders, there were the shutdown orders and so on, that we were open, that we were open for survivors who needed that help. I will say that it was an uphill battle. We had to very consciously uh, put together videos and try to disseminate them widely to our partners in the community. We had to reach out to TV stations and, and try to get spots uh, indicating that, that we are open, that despite everything being closed, courts are not closed. We had to get really buy-in from our uh, frontline 
clerical staff who, who are there really did put their lives on the line, still having people come in to file in person. In the meantime, in the background, we were scrambling to get an online filing process for somebody to file for a protection order remotely, uh, safely. We had to partner with law enforcement to ensure that our partnerships were still strong so that our 24-hour process for filing at any moment you know, uh, remained intact. And again, the, the sort of the unsung heroes behind all this were our, our IT personnel who, remember, we, we, nobody really knew about Zoom even in March of 2020. And, and here we are. They knew and they had an idea that it would be a good way to go. So the impact was immediate. We knew that we weren't going to have a slowdown in the sense of sort of the normal level of filings and we expected an uptick. And I think, as you've heard, initially, we didn't see that necessarily. We didn't see a slowdown, but we did not see an uptick. But what we did start to see immediately was very, very severe cases, almost like the most severe ones were the only ones uh, where people were really accessing the courts. And, and that's just a sad fact, you know, stabbings, shootings, many cases involving weapons, which you don't, you know, which you would see, but not nearly at the frequency that we started to see them. And again, just some just very, very terrible abuse. So we had to really keep the buy-in on the, on the bench going too. We had, you know, we have a large, fairly large court here and we had to get not just our DV court judges on board, but we had to circle the sort of everybody around this, this mission to make sure that these cases could be heard, not just that people could file, but that we gave them court dates and that we could give them full orders of protection, lasting orders as they're entitled to have under the law. So we pulled in judges from all over. We would divide one docket among three judges you know, and again, this was when you, it was even hard to find an extra webcam. So we made it work and we made it work with people being able to appear remotely, people being able to come into the courthouse still. As has been mentioned, our Supreme Court allowed a few things to proceed despite the other, you know, matters that were not able to proceed, but domestic violence and orders of protection were right there. That kind of helped us keep our head above water. And again, to make sure that we, we had the best chance of making, you know, of getting word out that we're still open. We met frequently with our community partners and not just telling them what we're doing, but trying to be very teachable, listening and responsive. It has led to some great innovation, but the, the sort of the challenge is now shifted to how are we going to have hearings that are going to proceed in a meaningful way? And the short version is that the hybrid sort of in-person and remote uh, seems to be not only increasing access to the courts, but also in many cases, increasing safety. Thanks, Judge. Almost everything you said could have been, with a change of a word or two, come out of the mouth of a legal aid lawyer because you face so many of the same challenges, but with very little uh, public recognition. Tiandra, obviously you've had to make adjustments in how you, in North Carolina, provide service. Can you talk about a few of the highlights in those adjustments that you've made during COVID? And just like everyone else, we had to make adjustments right out of the gate. And we're hopeful that some of those adjustments will stay in place in terms of remote hearings, that perhaps there's a hybrid. But we immediately set up a, a statewide virtual DV check-in. And that was so all of our advocates across the state could come together to talk about uh, various type of COVID-related measures, such as where were they getting information? What was happening in their area? And really to just keep everyone connected. And at that time, we were devising strategies because as everyone knows, things were sometimes changing on a daily basis. So likewise, 
our statewide partners, the Coalitions Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, they set up a similar uh, strategy with their constituents who are the domestic violence and sexual assault uh, agencies. And so prior to the pandemic, we kind of knew our traditional roles, legal aid does this, this coalition does that. But once COVID hit, all bets were off and we really came together. There's this very single united focus on just filling in gaps and sharing resources, regardless of what former roles were. And so in order to get a better understanding of what was happening on the ground, the policy director for the Coalition Against Domestic Violence and I actually just gave each other an open invitation so we can sit in on each other's check-ins just to get a better understanding what was happening with the non-legal advocates, what was happening with the advocates. And I think we're going to, to keep that going because that really enhanced our communication. Although the whole technology thing, I think I mentioned earlier, started, it, it, it was a little challenging at first, but I am happy to say there have been great improvements in North Carolina. I'd like to share a story. There was one particular judge who was really adamant against it, but in her words, after kind of getting the hang of it and working, in, working with the legal aid office, we helped her set up protocols. It's my understanding that she is the go-to judge for other judges who are having, still having some concerns. But I will say, by and large, I think we have kind of moved on past that hump. But before I go, I would really like to address the issue raised earlier about clients not being able to access technology. That is an issue. And so we took a few steps. During that time, we received a short-term grant from our North Carolina um, Governor's Crime Commission. With that grant, we were able to acquire some tablets. And so our senior law project who represents elder victims of abuse, what they would do with those tablets is set them up for the hearing to a point where it was just kind of hopefully a, a one push of a button to allow their clients to participate in hearings and they ended up using them a lot also for face-to-face -face meetings with the clients as well. And that really, that turned out so well that we're going to, to look into uh, using that method in the future. We also set up some portals in some of our offices. So in, instead of going to the courthouse, people could come to the office. It is not ideal, but it was a lot better than some of the survivors having to navigate through the courthouses. Some of our courthouses were quite busy. And so those were the highlights. One point you made bears repeating, which is the pandemic has made the digital divide even more dire than it was prior to the pandemic. Pam, Western Missouri was hard hit by tornadoes about a decade ago. What did you learn from that experience and how are you applying those lessons from uh, 10 years ago in the pandemic today? The biggest learning curve from the experiences of the disasters from 10 years ago is we adapted to outreach. You know, after our experiences from the tornadoes, we adapted by going to where our clients were. We had temporary housing units after the tornado um, and FEMA provided our um, community with at the time. And so we had those legal clinics, you know, to be able to reach out to those clients. So as a result, 
knowing how that was so helpful to those um, disaster survivors, we adapted our outreach and expanded virtual outreach. We were able to connect with our shelters. We were able to provide the 1-800 hotlines and providing them the access to our services more directly. Another great lessons learned, and we have continued on um, into the pandemic from our disaster experiences, is, you know, collaboration and staying in connection with our partners. We always have a seat at the um, communities organized active in disaster. And so therefore, that allowed us to be at the front lines for testing sites. Where can folks get vaccines? What resources are coming into our community is always so important. And being able to already be involved in all of our disaster partners, I know that there was mention of Catholic Charities, United Way earlier in this discussion today. And we partnered with them a lot and are now continuing to partner with them a lot because unfortunately, as a result of the tornado, despite the fact it was a decade ago, our housing stability and infrastructure was completely demolished, especially the low income homes and the multi-unit homes. And so we are seeing that the pandemic has created a spike in the cost of rental units and the fact that many of those lands that those vacant lots were on or um, were not rebuilt in the same low income availability to our community and the rents are much higher or maybe um, homeowners have left and they sold their property to investors who are now up grading those lots. And so therefore it's been very difficult. The housing crisis is what we are seeing now the most. Working with our partners, I think is going to be what we need and what we've learned as a result now because of the housing crisis and how it affects our survivors of abuse is we're now seeing the need to seek social work assistance, expanding our services and maybe utilizing interns from social work programs in which we did and have some volunteers to help our hundreds of clients that need better assistance navigating all the resources that are available and to be able to provide more holistic services. Those are all things that I feel that um, the disaster prepared us for and really attitude, knowing that you can be resilient and also understanding that everything is fluid and you need to adapt. And I think that that mindset helped better prepare us as we handled and walked through this pandemic together with our clients and our staff. Thanks, Pam. As Chief Justice McCormick said, the pandemic has really caused all of us to become innovators. Uh, it was either innovate or uh, uh, curl up and, uh, uh, and not be able to do our jobs. Brittany, Texas uh, regularly, gets more than its share of natural disasters. How do you at Lone Star tackle the challenges created by those disasters? We like to believe that preparedness and early education are really important tools in assisting survivors of domestic violence through a disaster. Providing information regarding assistance assistance that's available, shelters and social service organizations that are focused on helping survivors enables us to connect them with the help they're gonna need both during and after a disaster. So we've seen that domestic violence always tends to spike both during and in the aftermath of a disaster. And we find this is because victims are stuck in close quarters with their abusers, stress levels are high, there's a lot of uncertainty. 
We'll also see other forms of intimate partner abuse as well. One example that a colleague shared with me was a case where the husband took all of the FEMA funds, used it to repair his other home while leaving his wife displaced and without any assistance. So internally and from a logistics perspective, disasters require us to be much more orchestrated in our teamwork so we can continue serving survivors. Our program covers a service area that's larger than many states, but we actually see that as a strength. So for example, during a disaster, staff in less affected regions are able to cover for regions where staff need to focus on their immediate safety and other needs. For example, in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, we saw many survivors relocate to other parts of the state away from the coastal bend area. And so we created informational flyers to share with our local shelters and community partners in those areas. And that way we can let survivors know that they can reach out to those local offices for help and that they didn't have to wait until they were able to return home and try to apply there. On a broader perspective, We've partnered with the two other legal services agencies here in Texas, Legal Aid of Northwest Texas and Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid to develop the Texas Disaster Legal Help, which is an online tool that provides information in a guided format. But we've also tailored it to accommodate survivors. Um, on that side, it has a hide my visit button that's gonna immediately route the user to weather.com. And this is going to allow survivors to confidentially and quickly search for legal answers that they need well, they still have the option to escape and hide the fact that they were visiting the site from their abuser. And this is another really important tool that's available to them because the compounding factors of being in a disaster and being a survivor of domestic violence, they may not be able to make a phone call or to go in to visit a local legal aid office in order to get help. And then lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't plug the LSC multi-partner website, Legal Aid Disaster Resource Center, which can be found at www.ladrc.org. One of our attorneys, uh, Shushi Kotari, served as a subject matter expert in the creation of that resource, and it provides a ton of disaster relief information for both survivors and agencies across the country. Thank you. Judge Dodson, you've talked about the changes and innovations you made in response to the pandemic. Projecting yourself forward, what, what do you see being retained in a post-pandemic world? So I was just kicked off. I lost my connection moments ago, and I'm back. That's great. But it just drives home the point that technology is not the answer. It's a tool. It can be very, very helpful, but it is not, it's not the remedy for all of the problems that we have in terms of access to the court. So in part because of that digital divide. So, you know, I, I think I'll just keep it short. The most important innovation that we need to keep going is the unplugged one. It's the conversation. It's the teachable moments that we have. It's, it's partnering with our legal aid attorneys, our community partners, our national leaders uh, about what we can do as a court and as courts across the country to be responsive, to be teachable and make uh, hopefully things a bit safer going forward. And I think it's a great point. Whether you're talking about opioids, whether you're talking about service to veterans, whether you're talking about domestic violence, it's not a one-person show. You need a multitude of service providers, and you need collaboration and cooperation among them. And the courts need to be aware of, of what those resources are in their community. And thank you for uh, promoting that. Deb, could you uh, conclude our panel by, from a national perspective, uh, sharing what keeps you up at night at this point and, and what gives you hope, if anything? It's actually just picking one thing that's hard, right? So, um, well, let me start with what keeps me up so that we can end on what gives me hope. So each year, NNEDV conducts the Domestic Violence Counts Survey, which is a one-day unduplicated count of adults and children seeking domestic violence services in the United States. 
It's instrumental in raising awareness about domestic violence and the incredible work that local programs do every day. And then we use it for advocacy for more funding, more appropriations, and more federal policies. Also state policies, our coalitions use it as well. And our last one, our 15th annual domestic violence counts report found that on a single day in September of 2020, um, 76,000, over 76,000 uh, adult and children victims of domestic violence received, they actually did obtain the life-saving services that they needed, emergency and transitional housing, counseling, legal advocacy, children's support groups, and more. But here's the thing that keeps me up at night. On this same day, victims made over 11,000 requests for services that went unmet. So emergency shelter, housing, legal representation, and more. And of about 57% of those unmet requests were for housing and emergency shelter. So that is a number that I have to report on every year and keeps me up and is incredibly disturbing. But let me end with hope. Despite the sobering statistics and the overwhelming challenges of the last year or more, the strength and resilience of the domestic violence survivors and the advocates and the coalitions and the local programs and the legal aid attorneys give us reason for hope. We've really seen heroic efforts of staff in programs as they stretched every penny of funding. They leveraged creative approaches as we've talked about to providing essential services to meet survivors' needs, a job that is often thankless and traumatic, even in the best of circumstances. So that is the thing that, that gives me hope and definitely the way I'd like to wrap up. Well, thank you all. Uh, what gives me hope is that we have people like Judge Dodson and Pam and Brittany and Tiandra and Deb uh, who are dedicated and innovative in helping victims of domestic violence recover and remain safe during the pandemic. Uh, this was referenced earlier you are all heroes and we thank you for your service and thank you for being with us today. Our program today focused on shelter and safety, two fundamental human needs. America's legal aid lawyers, and as we saw our judges, our first responders, or at least they're on the front lines, often in preserving shelter and safety, and they make a huge difference. Just focusing on shelter for a moment, Eviction filings were up 8.7% in September from August of 2021. That happening in the wake of the termination of the CDC eviction moratorium. While the risk of evictions obviously remains high for millions of Americans, the eviction rate to date is still low on a historic basis, roughly half the average September rate uh, pre-pandemic. Now, why is that? Why haven't we at least yet seen the tsunami that we all fear? The lower eviction rates to date are due to a combination of federal and state eviction moratoria, emergency rental assistance, and eviction diversion programs and other modified eviction procedures that permit landlords and tenants to avail themselves of rental assistance before evictions occur. But none of these evictions, none of these initiatives eviction moratoria, emergency rental assistance, or eviction diversion programs are self-executed. All these initiatives require the assistance of professionals to ensure that public policies and benefits actually reach the people they were intended to help. 
America's legal aid lawyers provide that assistance every day and will remain dedicated to helping people in their homes and safe in those homes. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Stay well. Thank you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.